Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're going to be doing something in the world of literature, but this is actually something that kind of crosses both um, and, and has a lot of tie into both literature and philosophy. And this is one of the reasons that I've always felt that these two disciplines should be studied together. The more you study them, the more you start to recognize these overlaps. And the topic for today is going to be the matrix. So I want to go in and talk a little bit about how The Matrix, the film The Matrix, ties into philosophy and also how it ties into literature. Now, when talking about this, really only think about the first movie. Uh, the second and third movie, I think, were really just made to make money. Uh, the whole point behind those two was making money. Uh, they tended to distort a lot of what was done in the first and honestly, I feel the first stands alone as a, you know, as a work and the other two kind of diminish it uh, instead of adding to it. And this is often what happens when you make a uh, thoughtful movie and it makes a lot of money. People start to want sequels to it and sequels get made if there's enough money. But I want to talk about philosophy first with The Matrix. And one of the things that The Matrix does is it kind of goes back to the uh, idea of Descartes and uh, Berkeley about, you know, the evil demon or the, you know, that, that has the brain in the vat. Uh, and, you know, the external world is all an illusion. And this is what really is going on in The Matrix. You know, the people... Uh, that are still in the matrix, are still plugged into the machine, are basically fed all of what they know about the external world. They don't have any real access to it. And the people that are stuck in this, in, you know, internal world of the matrix don't even realize that what they're seeing is not reality. And this is a, you know, an idea that goes way back in philosophy. Even Plato's allegory of the cave, you know, kind of goes into this. When you have the allegory of the cave, remember way back from, you know, the first or second episode, I do believe, when you had, you know, every humanity was all chained to the floor, facing the wall of a cave, and all they knew about reality is what shadows were moving in front of them. And eventually one person gets free a little bit and is able to turn left and right and sees that, you know, they're chained facing the wall and so is everyone else. And they get more free, you know, and, you know, see the cut out shapes moving back and forth behind them. And that's what's been casting the shadows. And then they look behind that and see the fire that's causing that. And they move on past until they eventually get out and see reality. And if you, you know, watch the matrix this is what happens with uh neo when he gets brought out of the matrix and this is what happens to all of the people who got brought out of the matrix you know he was raised his entire life believing these images these sounds these sights these tastes these you know feelings uh were all real but they were actually all just implanted in his mind and when you um are you know watching this, it really does kind of draw on this idea of, well, what if it is this way? What if we are just 
you know, being fed this by, in, in this case, not a demon, but a, you know, a machine, a computer that's just feeding us everything and, you know, using us, you know, basically in the case of the Matrix as a battery. But in the case of, you know, uh, the way you could look at this, the Matrix could be, you know, performing a, a laboratory experiment on humans too, just to kind of see how they tick and see how they work. And there is a part towards the end where Neo talks to the, you know, the main programmer of the Matrix, and he is, um, he's basically told that, you know, there were other Matrix that were made before the one that he was in. The first one, the creator of the Matrix, the computer, tried to create a perfect world where everyone was happy all of the time. And he said human nature rejected this. Human nature didn't want a perfect world. And from a philosophical perspective, this is actually, you know, something that you will notice about humans. You know, how many times do people feel when things are going too well that they need to you know, sabotage things, that they need to, you know, or that things are about to go wrong and they feel ill at ease when things are going too well. So there is a certain amount of human nature where this is true. We do expect bad things, for, at least from time to time. It's not that we want them, it's just that, you know, human nature from dealing with the real world, that's the way the real world is. You have bad things that occur to you from time to time, and that's sort of the way we're programmed to see the world. And when those things are completely absent, we feel um, cut off. We feel like something's not quite right. And, you know, there's this discussion of, you know, the humans actually rejected it and were going insane because of it. And so they had to end up, you know, going back and making a world that was much more patterned after, you know, life at the end of the 20th century with it, all of the good and the bad things thrown in there and then fewer people seemed to reject it even though there were still ones that you know kind of rejected it and and some of them did end up escaping with help out of the matrix <clears throat> so you have uh this philosophical idea that runs through the whole movie and you also have a literary idea, the idea of postmodernism. Because when you watch the first Matrix, the ending in particular, well, throughout the whole thing, you're always left questioning what is real, what is real and what is the illusion of the computer. And this is one of the things that postmodern literature does. It always makes you question what is reality. And not only what is reality within the film, but what is the reality that we are actually all living. You know, this is one of the reasons that literature is read and or is watched in the case of films. Um, it has some connection to real life. It has connections to questions, to things that we actually experience. Now, remember, we talked about in philosophy that, um, you know, with uh, Wittgenstein, with the language games, that if you know, there's no connection to the experienced world that we have. If you try to uh, express something, write something, tell somebody something, and they have no way of, 
um, understanding because it doesn't connect to anything they've ever seen, heard, smelled, tasted, whatever, um, then you're not going to be able to actually convey that thought. All thoughts have to be conveyed, you know, based on things that people have experienced. And postmodern literature is very much something that, you know, remember after modernism, people were trying to put the world back together and make it make sense again in modernism. And in postmodernism, um, the, the writers and thinkers came to the realization that life is too complex. You can never understand the whole story. All of the parts will never seem to work together. And yet they do all somehow influence each other, but we never have the enough information to draw all of those connections. You know, the cause and effect we sense is there, we can feel it's there, um, but we don't have the ability to see all of the connections in between, and therefore we're kind of left wondering how much of the puzzle we're actually missing. And this is what you see in this postmodern movie. You know, Neo is, at the beginning, he's dissatisfied with life. He's a computer um, hacker. He writes, you know, programs that he sells for hacking. And he is very much outside of the mainstream of life. He's not someone who fits in with the nine to five. So he's kind of an outcast from the beginning. And this is a, this is sort of always the beginnings of where new ways of looking at the world come from, you know, and postmodernism tries to do that. And if you think about, you know, the people who shape history, um, shape the history of ideas in particular, they're often not people who are going along with the mainstream. In fact, they're often people who are excluded from the mainstream, pushed to the outside, because on the outside, you can sometimes get a better view of what's really going on instead of just accepting everything the way it is, because that's the way you've been told that it is. When you've been pushed to the outside or when you're an outsider, you start to question, you know, how much of this stuff that everybody takes as 100% true is actually true and how much of it is just illusion. And this is kind of where Neo is in the beginning of the story. Now, as the story progresses and he, you know, has the choice, do you want to go back to sleep and be part of the Matrix or do you want to take this other pill? And, you know, as Morpheus says, see how far down the rabbit hole really goes. You know, Neo didn't feel comfortable with where he came from. So he decides, let me see what else there is. And again, this is very much behind the spirit of postmodernism. Postmodernism takes the world, sees it as broken, sees it as not quite fitting together, but doesn't do it in a way that is hopeless. We can never know anything. It, it does it in a way that says, wait a minute, this opens the door for freedom. This opens the door for us to do things other ways. And when the first movie ends after Neo kind of defeats the computers and comes in to realize how much power he actually has, there's a little bit of a, you know, kind of a reference to Superman where he's flying around at the end like Superman. Um, but Superman, you know, always had that question of what if Superman decided he just wanted to rule humanity instead of being, uh, you know, 
a, a, ben a benefit to humanity. And the end of the first matrix kind of leaves you with Neo in that position. He has the power. He can either help keep freeing humanity, keep bringing more people out of the matrix, keep, you know, everything moving towards freedom, or he can give in to the temptation and become a tyrant. You know, he can be, compared to the rest of the people in the Matrix, Neo is like a god. And he's even at the end of the first movie sort of shown his ability to overcome the, the machines and the computers. And so you have this question at the end. You know, does Neo become a savior? Does Neo become a, a tyrant? And it, the first movie, if they had never made the other two, would end with you asking those questions. And all of these questions that the movie brings up, the first film, really are, you know, not just questions about fiction, they're questions about reality. How much of reality is the way we see it? How much of it has to be the way we think it has to be just because this is the way things have always been done? This is the way we've been programmed to see things. You know, how much freedom do we have to break out and to say, no, we're just going to rewrite a completely different reality. You know, the one we're living in is flawed, it doesn't suit us, and we're not going to keep living by these rules. So The Matrix does kind of give you, even though it's a, you know, it's a popular fiction movie, science fiction movie, it does give you a lot of ideas that go way back in philosophy and a lot of ideas that tie into postmodernism. And, you know, as we go through these discussions on both philosophy and postmodernism or on, and on literature and looking at them from the different angles, I hope that all of you are starting to apply this to other things than what I'm just what works we're talking about. Because these types of analysis that we do when we when we analyze literature, these types of analysis that we do when we analyze the ideas of philosophers, this is not just something you know, that's a fun mental experiment. This is something you can actually take these techniques and apply them to the real world, apply them to your life, and kind of dig for different answers. Also, grow your picture of the world, because the more you realize how many different perspectives are possible, um, the more you open your mind to uh, other perspectives and the and the less likely you are to uh, kind of denigrate someone else or some other group that has a different perspective than you do. Uh, and this is one of the things that as the world becomes smaller and smaller, closer and closer, um, we really need we really need to do these kinds of things. We need to think about things from different perspectives, from different angles. Um, and it will allow us to not only, you know, live our own lives more productively and successfully. And by, su by successfully and productively, I don't necessarily mean in a monetary sense, although it could be applied to that. You know, there, there's more to uh, living than just making money. I know this is kind of considered a heresy to say in a capitalist society, but you know, if you look at the people who that's all they do is make money, you rarely find any of them that are very happy uh, unless they find something that interests them and they can throw themselves into that. And usually 
the ones that are happier throw themselves into a lot of things that they see as benefiting others, philanthropy, things like that. Okay, I'm going to break off this episode here. Uh, my next episode, I am going to talk about, uh, I'm going to go back to the pragmatists, and I'm going to talk about another pragmatist, uh, John Dewey, and we're going to do a little bit of discussion on Dewey. And Dewey is another one like uh, William James, that his ideas were very much written to be put into practice. This, you know, That's the whole idea behind pragmatism. If it isn't practical, if it doesn't have application to the real world, if it doesn't show itself in the real world, then basically you're in their their from their perspective you're basically talking about you know meaningless garbage because it's it doesn't affect the real world. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.